Hey, what's going on, everybody? It's episode 121 of the Audible Farm podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Couchtown Coffee. Couchtown Coffee roasts coffee and then ships it to your house, and you don't even have to do anything but sit back, grind the beans, enjoy. It's amazing. It's my favorite coffee, and that's not hyperbole in any way. It actually is my favorite coffee. If you go to the Audible Farm Facebook page or Instagram page, you can find a a picture of me with the biggest bag of coffee you've probably ever seen in your life. And I got it from Couchtown, Uh, and all I have to do is go to CouchtownCoffee.com and make an order. And what's even cooler is you can enter the code word Audible Farm when you do make an order. And that lets them know that Audible Farm sent you there, and you they'll give you 20% off. Is that cool? Yes, that's cool. You know why? Because Couchtown Coffee is that awesome. So check them out, www.couchtowncoffee.com. This episode, I am sitting down with Brad Hansen. Brad is from the Iowa area. Actually, he's from not too far from my area. And he moved away and came back, and then, and then he moved away again. So now, it's kind of fun because... We had discussed a couple times about having him on the podcast, and he moved away and came back, and finally I was just like, ah, whatever, you know, he's from my area, he's making music, everybody around here, um, you know, I don't say everybody around here knows him, but a lot of people in my area know him, so I figured it'd be fun to sit down and talk with him, and then we sat down and talked, and something was going on with our connection, and the interview didn't go very well, and by the time I clipped everything out and all the weird pauses and stuff, and all of the glitches with sound edits and nonsense. It was like 15 minutes long, and I was like, that's not going to do. So I hit him up again. We did another interview, and that's what you're listening to today. It's great. I'm so glad I got to sit down and talk with him. Uh, I actually think the second interview was better. You know, we uh, already knew each other a little bit because we sat down and talked for about an hour or so before. So that uh, was a good thing. That was a good thing. I think it was anyways. I think you guys will enjoy this one. If you know Brad, it's cool. Check it out. If you don't know Brad, that's even cooler. So check it out. I hope you enjoy his music. Uh, We talk about it in the upcoming podcast as far as the differences in the scenes and all sorts of things uh, between California and, and Iowa. So check it out. This is episode 121 with Brad Hansen also known musically as Bradley Allen. It's the Audible Farm Podcast. With your host, Peter Stockdale. All right, today I'm sitting down with Brad Hansen, you might know him more as Bradley Allen, actually. Um, the last episode we recorded didn't work out so well, but uh, we're doing another one, and uh, I'm glad we're doing it. Uh, Brad, do you want? Would you prefer to be Bradley Allen or Brad Hanson? Because uh, Brad is fine. It's Brad, cool. we'll just call you Brad. Um, if you're looking online for his stuff, Bradley Allen is where he has released a lot of music. Brad, you are originally from Iowa. Uh, the Manson area, actually, which is not terribly far from, you know, where I hang my hat at, you know, most of the time anyways. So it's kind of cool that you're from this area. Uh, you've moved away and come back a couple different times and played music around the area. Um, currently, you have made a, a new album. Uh, when did that album actually come out? Uh, Permanent Birds came out uh april 20th of last year so it's it's crazy it's almost been out a year already yeah it comes back to that like 2020 is such a weird year because 
Uh, I talked about it in a recent podcast where some things that happened just a while back feel like they were yesterday and some things that happened, you know, six months ago feel like they were years ago. So yeah, it's, uh, depending on how you look at it, some, some of 2020 can just like delete the whole thing. Like it never happened or other parts of it. It's like, man, this year took forever to finish, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, uh, I actually, uh, have sat down and listened to your, to your album and in previous discussions, you and I have talked about how, um, when you grew up playing music, you kind of played heavier stuff. So like, how did you end up starting playing music when you were in the Manson area? So I started playing guitar when I was like eight or nine. Um, I think I got my first acoustic when I was like eight, but it was a full size acoustic and I was too small. Mm -hmm. And then the, the following year I got, uh, like a Squire mini Strat. Um, uh, it was like Torino red mm -hmm. and I was finally able to properly learn how to play mm -hmm. and the electric just seemed more appealing to me at the time you know when you're a kid you just want to like plug it in and crank it up and jam you know <laughs> yeah I just um, want to shred <laughs> and then shortly after that um one of my good childhood friends i've known him since i was in kindergarten uh his name's jared leppert um he had a drum set so i would go over to his house and we would kind of jam on stuff like acdc and whatnot and then um Eventually, I got a second guitar, and he started to become more interested in that. So him and I both sort of learned guitar around the same time. And then uh, we were actually looking for other uh, bandmates, and that's how I met dudes like Ferry, Caleb Ferry. Um, we actually, old school, looked his phone number up in the phone book <laughs> and like called his house, and his mom answered. And uh, he was like, who are you guys? <laughs> and we are like, uh, you know, we're Brad Jared, we live in Manson, and, uh, you know, we need a bass player. And he was like, well, I don't have a car, because we were like 14. So <laughs> he was like, good luck, dudes. <laughs> uh, and then eventually uh, we linked up with uh, Jake Merritt and Greg Merritt and Corey Waller. And okay. we started, a, I guess you'd call it like metalcore or, or deathcore. But just a super heavy metal band, mm -hmm. um, and I we had that going uh, from the time I was fourteen, so like uh, in eighth grade or freshman year of high school, up until uh, like freshman year of college when I moved to LA the first time. So we did it for quite a while. Yeah, um, and I, I learned basically everything I know from the, playing with those guys. I mean, those guys are such great musicians. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we had talked about it earlier. I'm, I'm going to actually ask you to do something. Can you tuck your microphone underneath your beard, maybe? Underneath my beard? Yeah, it's like I'm getting a lot of beard feedback on it. It's like weird, getting scratchiness. I don't know if it's... Maybe I'll hold it out like that. I mean, that's awesome, but it's like, how much do you want to hold your microphone? <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't matter. Oh, man, it's totally up to you. But... um. I mean, I can I can hear what you're saying audibly, but anybody that's listening and not watching, it's uh, it's it's his beard scratching on the mic. But uh, um, you know, we talked about that oh, oh, like in one of our previous conversations, how Manson seems to be one of those weird areas where everybody plays music, and I don't know why. There's just so many talented people coming out of the Manson area playing music. It's not like they're flooding the scene and just destroying the national circuit or anything, but like around here, there's so many people that are so talented coming from Manson. What's the deal with that? Is there somebody there that's teaching everybody stuff or what's, 
I, I really don't know. I, I think it was all just by chance, you know? Um, I, I think the merits actually originally, uh, came, grew up in Kansas and then moved, uh, up to, to the Manson area. And then, uh, the Nets brothers, they were originally from Rockwell city and they moved to the Manson area. So we just had this like influx of incredibly talented, wide variety of musicians. Um, and you know, the, the Schoen brothers, Mike and Mark Schoen, they were just like half a block away from my house. So, I mean, there was music all around when I was growing up in, you know, middle school to high school. So, you know, it's pretty wild. Cause I don't think every town has that. I understand Manson's kind of small, so you kind of have the luckiness of having like a smaller town. So proximity, everyone that lives there is kind of sort of close to one another, you know, regardless of where you live in Manson, but it's, yeah, it's still one of those deals where like, I, you know, I grew up in Humboldt and there were a lot of people here who played music, but it wasn't like outspoken. It wasn't like, there's a lot like that guy plays guitar. That guy plays guitar. Everyone jams and we all know it and they all have bands. So there's not a whole lot of that that goes on in every town. And there, it seems like you've got people with varying abilities too. Cause I mean, some people prefer playing like bluegrassy or kind of stuff. And, and some people prefer their heavier stuff, you know, um, obviously when you're younger, you're going to prefer the heavier <clears throat> stuff. Yeah. Whatever's loudest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, I remember we had talked about that before too, though. Like the, the heavier stuff is cool. Cause once you get that guitar in your hand and you, you just E, you know, E chord, just heavy power chord, or you drop it in drop D for the first time. And you're like, yeah, this is so heavy, you know, or you start to like be able to play a little bit and you're like, Oh, I could shred this thing. But once you plug into a clean guitar amp, you're like, Oh, this is, completely different you know it's yeah yeah i mean that was that was a huge stepping stone for me going from you know playing death metal to you know indie folk bluegrass whatever you want to call whatever i play now um but yeah it's it's so different it's so different um like that always you know that made me think like do you have to like in your mind kind of shift gears when you go from one genre to another um, for example, like if you were to pick up a random guitar, like I've got some behind me, I mean, you, you can't see it from the angle you're at. And I, I don't know if anyone else can see it from the live or from not the live video, but from the video I'm doing, but like, I, you know, I've got a high gain amp and I'm always just like, plug it in, crank up the distortion, you know, uh, just whatever it happens to be, you know, just play something heavy, you know, um, just some Ozzy or some like Megadeth or some Metallica or something. And it's just like, yeah, heavy distortion. Cool. But you know, is that your instinct when you first pick up a guitar? Is you like, you want to, I want to shred this thing or is it, you know, I'm going to play something slower or easier or, um, how does your brain adapt going from one genre to the next? Is it, was it an easy shift or it always kind of blows my mind when people are able to do that? Uh, it, it definitely took me a while to figure out how to do that. Um, for the longest time I was only playing guitar. I didn't have to worry about vocals. So I would just, you know, crank my guitar and just start shredding. Um, and then once I started to write more indie stuff and kind of branch out of my comfort zone, um, you know, my, my entire rig started to change. Um, when I was still playing heavy music, I was, I, I had like three different amps and, uh, the, the last time I used it, it was like, I was using two amps at the same time. So I had like a, a PV 5150 on a Mesa 412 cab. And then I had this, uh, hovercraft, um, 
50 watt amp head that I had custom made and then like a PV valve King 412 cab. And I had them both going at the same time. <laughs> um, and, and then eventually I had like a, a sun, it was like a seventies, uh, sun 200 base amp with a matching 215 cab. And I was running all three of them at the same time. And <laughs> I was like, man, I, I can barely fit this in my car. Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, I was, I was getting so tired of lugging stuff around. And, uh, one of my, my bandmates, um, Matt James from, uh, Matthew James and the Rust Belt Union. He was like, Hey man, have you ever thought of just playing like a, a tweed deluxe? And I was like, I, I don't know. <laughs> and I, I, I went into a, a guitar store and, and kind of messed around with it. And yeah, I had no idea what I was doing. Cause it was like a, just a totally new era. Like I had never played clean on any of my other amps. It was always high gain, high distortion all the time. So I think once I, I ended up buying that blues deluxe, it kind of opened my eyes and, and taught me like, Oh, I can, I can still get some of those metal sounds out of this amp. I just have to use pedals or, you know, push the gain a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And some of the bands that I really loved listening to like Mastodon and, and Baroness, like the guys from Baroness, they play single coil, like telly or jazz master guitars through a Princeton reverb, like, you know, they're not playing these giant full stacks anymore. So I was like, you know what? I don't need all this stuff. And it's definitely going to be a lot easier on my back when I'm carrying this stuff around. Yeah. That's, I feel you a hundred percent with like the dragging gear everywhere. I mean, I, I used to do the same thing. It was two, four by 12s, two amps. And, you know, you do the bi amp thing. And it was really, it was tons of fun because you get this awesome blended sound that like nobody else has, you know, and it's people would always be like, how do you get your tone? And it's like, well, two amps and two different sets of speakers. I mean, it's, you're blending stuff that people can't hear with just one person normally. And I get it. It's cool. It sounds great. But eventually you get tired of hauling the gear, you know, and I, I got tired of hauling it just as much as you know the next guy but i i did the same thing you did and i was like i'm gonna get uh an amp that's known more for like clean or maybe like slightly overdriven sounds um and i ended up doing a a pv classic 30 i mean that's just one of those ones it's like well this can do blues and clean stuff and maybe some rock stuff too and then you realize like you said there's more gain on tap on some of these than people ever give those clean style amps credit for oh yeah for sure i mean uh, anymore i have like a, a vox ac15 c1 it's just the only thing special about it is it it's in british racing green instead of black <laughs> but other than that you know it's all stock um I've, I've got a handful of pedals that i i use for a little bit of texture here and there but other than that like i've been playing my acoustic so much that i haven't even really turned my amp on in probably the last year year and a half so oh wow yeah i guess like you probably don't really need an amp out live, you know, cause there's probably not terribly many places to play live out there right now. No, not right now. I mean, everything's pretty much shut down. Like, um, so I'm, I'm in Pasadena and, uh, Colorado Boulevard is just two blocks North of me where they do the Rose parade and they canceled it this year. So, you know, old town Pasadena where I work currently is like a ghost town. There's nobody out really at all it's pretty wild yeah i mean like i bet i bet there's actually a difference in the scenes out there from like there to here 
I also wanted to uh, uh, double back and say uh, I've been listening to Baroness for, you know, I don't know, the last handful of years. Uh, Purple Album totally hooked me in. And then I started, like, looking at the gear oh, yeah. they used, and I was like, dude, this is some crazy, crazy gear. Because, like you said, it's not all high gain like you think it would be. It's a lot of textured mid-range and low-gain stuff with pedals to help it out, you know, and it's they make oh, yeah. fun sounds. Yeah, I mean, I... I hooked in um, on the Blue album, which was like their second or third full length. And at the time, they were using, you know, big heavy Les Pauls and and Bad Cat full stacks. And then, um, you know, the Green and Yellow album came out. And that one was really my favorite immediately when it came out. Um, And they kind of dialed things back. And you saw him starting to play like G&L ASAT specials and, and, you know, some semi-Holotellis and um, you know, it seems like as they've put the last few albums out, they, they've used more non-traditional metal gear and it sounds heavier than, than most of the stuff that's out there, mm-hmm. which is awesome. Yeah. For a while they were doing like a uh, pedal, they were showing off pedal board stuff on their, um, Facebook page and Instagram page. I mean, it was probably a year or so ago. So if you want to scroll back through and see what kind of pedals he was using, like, uh, around the time of like the purple album. I mean, that'd be a great thing to do if anybody's really interested in the pedals and stuff. But, you know, it's it's really cool that, like, I mean, for people that don't understand the guitar, it is, it's, you can grab a high-gain amp and plug in a, a guitar with, you know, awesome pickups in it and just put a noise clamp or a noise gate on it and just, you know, you don't have to have much control to to get that kind of a gain. But once you start adding the gain to like semi hollows and like single coils and things like that, it's like, you actually have to be a little bit artistic with what you're doing. You can't just slap a boss distortion pedal in there and call it good. Yeah. I, I actually bought a, a fuzz pedal from, uh, John Baisley from Baroness. He has a company called Philly fuzz. Um, and I bought the martyr fuzz pedal, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're, they're really cool. It's a, it's a really simple, uh, you know, high, high gain fuzz pedal. Um, it's just got two knobs and on off switch and, um, they're like hand painted. So he hand paints each one and they're, they're all different. They don't look the same and it sounds great. That's cool. That's, that's also really cool that he hand paints them and stuff. That was another thing about them that really intrigued me was like a lot of the artwork was done by their singer and guitar player, you know, and it's, it's not, not always done, you know? Um, yeah, but he's like a, I guess a true artist of sorts, you know, I guess, or whatever, but it's just an intriguing band. I guess if anybody hasn't heard of them, check them out, you know? Um, but the scenes like between, you know, LA and here have got to be like extraordinarily different. I'm sure that like the travels different or like the places you play load in and load out is different. Um, like right now in Iowa, some bars, uh, have the ability to run at X amount of capacity or whatever, the regulations happen to be whenever anyone's listening to this, but some places have music. Some places are choosing not to do it. And it's kind of this weird thing. Cause like we can have music, but out there, can you even have like a, a place that's playing music at all right now? No, you can't. Uh, we're actually on uh, a stay at home, like lockdown order. So if you're not an essential worker or going out for something essential, uh, you know, you're not allowed to congregate. Um, Pasadena has their own health department and they've kind of been like F you to, <laughs> to Los Angeles, uh, in Los Angeles County. But, um, the whole state actually trumped that and was like, no, actually you're not going to have any outdoor seating. 
you know, there's a lot of bars around here that they used to do like outdoor uh, events for even football games or, or basketball or whatever, but they they just shut it down. They can't do it anymore. So, oh, yeah, wow. we we don't have anything going on right now. That's wild. I mean, that's got to be really weird because I mean, for a while here, it was the same story. You couldn't no no shows, no nothing. I mean, that was so crazy to the fact where like, um, I'm I was even playing a private show and there was only six people in the building. Let me double count that. Yeah, there was only six people in the building. And, like, somebody called it in, and they shut us down, you know? And it was like, we're doing a private show that's only for streaming in a venue, and there's only six people in here, and it's well enough for us to all stay far enough apart, but it was still no go. So, I mean, obviously, that different certain times and situations call for different things, and it's just such a weird time to be able to to do that. But let's let's double back and imagine you can play shows. Let's say that uh, this doesn't exist uh, is the scene there different? Do you have to do pay to plays or like what kind of shows do you, if you were going to play a show, what kind of like, how tough would it be to book a show? Or, um, is there like so many musicians where it's like, well, you've got to pay if you want to play a show or how does that work? It, it kind of depends on the venue that you want to play at. Um, I mean, there's places like whiskey, a go, go, um, they do pay to play for the most part, uh, from my understanding, but they also take the time to make sure that you fit on the bill. So they're not going to throw me on there with like, you know, a deathcore band or, or, yeah. you know, a DJ show or something. Um, there's a lot of smaller bars in smaller neighborhoods um, that they do have live music. There's a, there's maybe five or six in Pasadena that I know of. Um, one of them is actually a German bar called Der Wolf. Um, they used to do live music and I was getting ready to book shows there. And, uh, there's another place that's like a, a record store that, uh, they had two locations and they were like right across the street from each other. Um, it was called permanent records and they turned one of the locations into like a, a bar live venue record store kind of place. Oh, cool. Um, it's a uh, permanent records roadhouse. That's sweet. That's, um, that's... and they're, it's my favorite record store in all of Los Angeles. Um, you know, I, back when we could go there, you know, yeah. I was in there all the time and they're not too far from me, like maybe 15 minute drive, but, um, yeah, I, I definitely at some point would love to play there, but, um, yeah, most of the, like the venues that book people that aren't super big are, you know, not even necessarily just smaller bars, but like smaller retail as well. Like some of the skate shops out here will close down at night. And they'll have like live shows in there, which is pretty rad. Oh, that's cool. So it's almost like these businesses are like supplementing their income somehow with music or like, yeah, it's almost like they're all, or they could be using like the music in their venue to advertise for their venue. Cause it's like, well, we're doing music now. It's like, I want to buy this record. Well, I'll come back tomorrow when we're open, you know, and, and buy the record, yeah. you know? So that's, that's really cool that places are willing to like do that. It's, there is a little bit of that here and there um, in some venues around Iowa. I mean, it's not unheard of, but it's it seems to be a little bit more common out there where music seems to be a little bit more part of the culture and more accepted out there. Yeah, I, I think the main difference for me is like, you know, I lived in Iowa for so long and you create these relationships with not even the bars that already exist, but the people you went to school with eventually end up you know, starting their own bars and stuff. So, um, for me, it was more of like, uh, you know, I, I moved out to Pasadena, 
you know, in the LA area and I didn't know anybody. So it was really difficult for me to be like, all right, where, where do I go as an, you know, independent solo musician, uh, where other independent solo musicians are. So a lot of it's just taking the time to, to do a lot of research online and, and going out to different bars and being like, Hey, where's live music around here? Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the recon is pretty fun, but, uh, eventually, you know, it, it wears out and you're like, okay, this neighborhood doesn't work for me. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I pretty much stay away from Hollywood as much as I possibly can. Um, <laughs> uh, it's just so dirty and crazy, but, uh, you know, places like neighborhoods like Eagle Rock and Silver Lake, those are a lot more chill and, and even Pasadena here is pretty chill. So I'm finding a lot of the smaller neighborhoods are a lot more like the Fort Dodge area. You know, you just have to introduce yourself and, and talk to people and ask the right questions and you get the right answers. You know, and that's a true testament to like how, whether or not we want to admit it, music is, um, to an extent, like a social endeavor, you know, like it's something that you have to actually, you know, try to network with people and talk to people in order, you know, to kind of push your thing. I mean, there's like the obvious argument that if the music's good, people will come regardless, but like you have to start out somewhere. It's just like a business. You have to tell people you exist before people even know you exist. And if nobody talks about it or if you don't share it with anybody, you know, or if you don't seek out your clientele and it's, it's going to be a little tough. And that's, you know, that's something we've, I've talked about on other podcasts with people. And it's something I, I th- honestly think is very important as far as music goes. Cause there's some people that are, you know, they'll say things like, I can't believe these guys are getting played on the radio or something, blah, blah, this, that, and the other. And it's like, you know why it happened? Cause they did the research and they asked, you know, and yeah. that, sometimes that's what it takes is just getting your foot in the door and being like, what kind of music, like you said, what kind of music is played here? Will I fit in here at all? And throw your name in the hat if, if you do. You never know what's going to yeah. happen. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, some of the people that I've I've met and become friends with w- was literally from me going to a bar and being like, hey, do you guys have live music here? And they'd be like, no, it's over at this place. And then I walk over to that place and then, uh, you know, I check out their Instagram page, their Facebook page, see what kind of bands have played there. I follow those bands, you know, message the members individually and, and start to develop, you know, some sort of relationship that way, even if, even if it's not a show that I would, you know, necessarily play with that band, you know, just to know other musicians in the neighborhood so they can kind of keep an eye out for each other is pretty dope. Yeah. Yeah. There's something to be said about that too. Cause, uh, I mean, I'm sure it's not, like you said, not terribly different. You get a community out there. It's only so big. So there's only so many musicians and y'all kind of know each other. It's not too much different in Iowa. There's only a few thousand of us that are, you know, involved in the music scene, still making music, constantly making music. And I understand like a few thousand sounds like a lot, but it's kind of like you're from a small town. You get it. It's like, you don't know everyone in the town, but you've seen faces and you understand who is who you don't know them, but you know, you know, you kind of realize who they are and it's that community involvement that is, it's really kind of that tough thing. It's like a barrier. A lot of people fail to break when they think about starting a band. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, I, as someone who has like high level anxiety, like it, it definitely took a while for me to break out of my comfort zone and, and do this whole thing on my own. Cause I was so used to being the guitar player and being like, Hey man, just tell me when to show up and I'll bring my gear and I'm there. Like, yeah. You know, oh, 
most like when I started off, I, I never booked shows. Like I didn't know how to do that. You know, we had older members in the band that, you know, like I think Greg and Corey took care of most of those shows that were like, Hey, we're playing at Spanky's tonight or, you know, Eagles landing or whatever, but, or at a, you know, VFW hall in Manson. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, dude, dude, that's something else. Like don't ever like under, under, appreciate the ability of someone to book a show because like i've done a little bit of it here and there i'm not like the main booker man or whatever in in three finger betty but i've booked shows and it's it's not easy you know you have to haggle with prices you have to figure out who gets what and 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 whether or not the band even wants to do it and you have to be this intermediary that is actually not always easy and it's not always fruitful you know and it's tough to do yeah for sure yeah i mean i that's that's a testament once again to like going out there and doing it because if you're from like an area like Iowa or whatever you might I almost guarantee everybody knows somebody that plays music live like whether or not you know them well enough or not but you can always just ask them and be like where do you play or like who do you know that might know somebody that would like what I'm playing or something and you can kind of wedge your way into the scene but you moved into a place where you didn't know anybody you know, you didn't, right. <laughs> so you, you couldn't even be like, well, I know a guy that plays music or whatever. And it's, I'm sure like you would, it's even tough for you in a situation. Cause it's like, well, I work at this place and then it's like, well, does anybody here play music? And then you're like, no. And it's like, well, that's the end of, that's the end of that circle. All right. Gotta go somewhere else, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I kind of lucked out where it's like, uh, you know, working at the job that I have now, um, it's, there actually are a lot of musicians that I work with. So it's like, Oh, you, you know, you get stoked when you find out somebody else at work plays music and you're like, what do you play? Where's your music? Where can I find it? And you know, you trade CDs or whatever t-shirts and you know, that's, that's where I found most of, uh, you know, my musician friends out here is just through work actually. It's not even anything related to music. You know, I'm slinging coffee and pie. So, (laughs) (laughs) oh, coffee shops, you know, they have that kind of indie acoustic style stuff kind of going for them though, too. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, does yours have any music in it? Your coffee, the coffee shop you work at? Not really. Uh, The location that we're at, um, it's, it's sort of like four or five, well, three or four businesses in one open room oh wow so there's like an ice cream place and a a pressed juice place and uh like a tea place like you know loose leaf tea um so it's more of like everyone grabs their stuff and then they just go Mm -hmm. Uh, no one's really hanging out even even like pre-pandemic no one was really hanging out to listen to music and it's such a huge room that it's like it used to be a bowling alley. So the acoustics in there are terrible. Yeah. <laughs> and, and we've had, you know, a couple instrumental musicians come in like a piano player and, and, uh, you know, uh, classical guitars come in for certain events, but nobody pays attention and it doesn't sound that great. And so we just, we don't really bother with it. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's another tough thing about like venues with music is some venues, uh, have music and they're not really built for it or made for it, but they do it anyways. Um, and then there's also other venues that are, would be perfect for music and they don't, they don't even do it, you know? I mean, yeah, I'm sure everybody's seen it, but there's plenty of venues I've been in where it's like, there's a stage in here, but they have 
chairs and stuff on it for people to sit and eat food at. So whatever, I guess. Like, yeah, could have music, but don't have music. But uh, I also understand some of the the dilemmas that comes along with music. Like, uh, if you want to book a full band, sometimes it costs more, you know. But uh, you're playing indie music. Are you playing uh, this stuff solo when you play it live? Yeah, it's it's just me up there. I don't take any pedals or anything. Um, most of the time I just plug DI, so I don't even need an amp, nice. uh, which is great. Um, I, I haven't really played out here in LA that much. Um, right when I released permanent birds, it was like right when the pandemic hit. So right when I got a, a vehicle to tour with and, you know, started coming up with designs for merch and whatnot, uh, everything just stopped. So right when I was about to kick off and get going, it was just like, nope, pump the brakes. This yeah. actually is not going to happen anytime soon. So, Yeah, that's a heartbreaker. Because like you said, the whole state there was just like, done. We're not doing it. You know, And so you yeah. can't even like cruise to the next town over and do it, which I guess in Iowa is like, you know, for a while that was a possibility. In some places you couldn't do anything or play music, but like... You know, there wasn't anything stopping anyone from driving two towns over and doing it in a smaller place where they didn't care, you know, and that's, yeah. that was also some of the, you know, the reason there was so much animosity because there wasn't, well, nobody really set up any rules, but that's just also kind of the goofy thing. This year has been, has been loony for that kind of stuff. And it's, it's tough to release an album in the year, especially when you don't know what's going to happen. You know, you, you're kind of just blindsided by this. This was something you didn't even plan on, you know, it's like, well, let's release right. an album and and happy 2020 and then all of a sudden womp exactly i mean i i will say that the nice thing is that i've been i've been able to sit down and and write even more music so you know i'm already working on the next album i've probably got maybe 15 to 18 songs that i'm working on uh i'm not sure if they'll all make the cut but uh i hope so um you know i'm that's wild. I have a hard time writing one song and you got like 15 to 18 in. <laughs> Plus you hats off. You're doing the work during COVID, you know? It's not like you were just like, "Wah, I'm going to sit on the couch." You're doing you're doing work, you know? So it's cool. Yeah, I mean, I figured, you know, I'm stuck at home. That's where all my equipment is. I record all my stuff in our our little guest room that we have. Um, I produce and and master everything myself, so it's like, you know what, I'm not just going to sit here and complain about it. You know, it's not very often that you're forced to take time off to be like, you know, work on, on what you love. So I figured why not just work on more music, you know, stockpile some stuff, really experiment and play around with some things and, and see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. Oh gosh. You know, and there's, that's something else I had a conversation in another podcast with somebody else about. It's just, it's so important not to squander these opportunities. I mean, it's obviously a dark cloud, but the silver lining is you have more time to do, you know, something else. You have more time to attack a hobby. Maybe it's a little more pressing when you don't have a hobby, I guess, you know, but, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, and that's a testament to that kind of stuff. Cause you know, during the, you know, during all that this year, I've, uh, you know, I've done stuff too, you know, I've launched the video version of the podcast, go check it out and stuff. But like, it's, it's so cool to see other people actually like doing things. And like you said, you wrote 15 plus songs, you know, and I, I have trouble writing one and, 
it's how do you how do you go through your songwriting process? Is that something that came to you naturally, or like the first couple songs you wrote, were you just like, you know, let's write a different one, or like how did that go down? I actually I remember like some of the very first songs that I ever wrote when I was just learning how to play. Um, I had like a little cassette player that had a record function, and it was just it looked like a Walkman, mm-hmm. but it was like a cheap RCA ripoff thing. Um, and this, this one girl that I was going to school with, you know, she, she, we would kind of poke fun at each other about, you know, our hobbies and stuff. And she was like, you play guitar, you can't even write a song. And I was like, oh yeah. So I wrote a song and then recorded it on the cassette tape and gave it to her. And I was like, there, there you go. There's your song. (laughs) Um, and then after that, it was such a like traumatic experience that I was like, I don't think I'm ever going to sing again. So I just stuck to playing guitar. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, 10 years later, I was like, you know what? I think I can, I think I can handle this. I think I can do it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's the way that it comes about is just totally random. I, there's no set way. It's not like I, you know, punch in a time clock and go, okay, I'm going to write something today. Most of the time it's, it's, you know, I might be watching TV or, or, listening to a podcast on the way to work and I hear something that somebody says and it, you know, sparks an idea in my head and I'll write it in my notes in my phone or, you know, a melody might come into my head when I'm walking to work and I'll, I'll sing it into my microphone and leave it in my recordings for later and try and figure out what I was thinking, mm-hmm. you know, the next day. But, um, usually I would say most of it comes with like guitar parts first and then from there, you know, I hear a melody on top of that and I might hum the melody out and then try and figure out the cadence to words and then fit words in there. Um, songwriting is a relatively complete songwriting is a relatively new thing for me. So I'm I'm always trying to push myself to find new ways, whatever it is, to just get something because, mm-hmm. you know, there are some days where you sit down for 15 minutes and you've got like three songs. And then there's some days you sit down for 15 hours and you've got nothing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, that was something I did during COVID was like set up a mini recording studio to like record things. And I started like recording stuff where I was playing on guitar. And it's like you said, sometimes you sit down and it's like, I played all day and I recorded like an hour's worth of stuff and I don't like any of it, you know, and other times you record stuff and you're like, man, this is, this riff is cool. And you can almost like smash together a rudimentary song in like, you know, a half an hour or something. And I, I totally get it too. Like you said, if you hear something in your head, write it down or, or record it into your phone and come back later and kind of try and figure it out. Cause some of those recordings, uh, I've come back to and it's like, man, this is hot garbage. But other times you come back to it and you're like, <laughs> dude, this is actually pretty good, you know, and I'm not one to say my own stuff is pretty good to myself, but if I, if I think that I'm usually like, Oh yeah, that one actually is kind of good. I'm going to save that one and set it aside. So, I mean, I, I still have that crippling anxiety of just like, ah, I don't want to put anything out, you know, but if you put music out and you're not anxious about it, I guess your heart's probably not really in it then. Yeah. I mean, I, I think what also helps for me too is, um, you know, grabbing different instruments, maybe not even necessarily like going from a banjo to a guitar, but even just picking up a different guitar, whether it's an acoustic or electric or, you know, you maybe you start on a telly and you can't come up with anything and you pick up a Les Paul and something clicks, you know, Mm -hmm. whatever gets the job done is I'm all for it. 
Yeah, that was actually something until very recently to me. Like, until recently, a guitar was a guitar. I just didn't care. You know, it's like, well, it makes sound. I'll make sound out of it, and it'll work. You know, it's that, like, punk rock mentality. Like, what amp you got? Don't care. Plug in. Turn up the game. Right. But uh, <laughs> until recently, and then I was just like, wow, every guitar has, like, a different feel and sound and response and and voice and and different styles come out of them when you pick them up you know because like we were talking about playing different styles when you pick up a an acoustic your first inclination to play something is not the same as when you pick up like a gibson explorer or something like that you know or pointy (laughs) guitar so it does influence the playing style a little bit or different things can come out you know and little different bits of magic um Plus, I don't know, the more I learned about it, the more I realized some of the wiring's different, and then all the pickups have different responses, and blah, blah, blah. You start to figure it out. But it was one of those deals that it wasn't until, you know, like maybe five years ago it all dawned on me. I was like, oh, this is this actually, these do help invoke some of those different thoughts and emotions sometimes, you know, bring different music out that you didn't think was going to come out in the first place. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I, did, I didn't really think about that sort of thing when I was younger. You know, I... I definitely was heavily influenced by, you know, guys like Eddie Van Halen who just rip apart their guitars and, you know, totally change not only the aesthetic, but how it sounds. And I didn't understand how that works until I actually went to Musicians Institute for Guitar Craft and and learned how to build stuff and fix stuff and change stuff. And then I was like, oh, there's you can actually do a lot more with this. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't. uh, You know. I didn't know you went there. That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. It was, I think, like 2013, I think I went there. It was, where like, was right it? in the heart of Hollywood. Is that where, oh, geez, that's crazy. That's really crazy. Um, you know, and I, I did a lot of that stuff, you know, DIY, searching the internet, hoping somebody's not lying about something and, and wiring <laughs> it up and praying no smoke comes out of it when you start it up, you know. And, um, oh, yeah. I'm not a genius or anything, but like, that's pretty much what got me started on figuring it out too, was just like, I'm going to buy a cheap guitar and I'm just going to modify it over and over and over and over again until I figure out what all this stuff does, you know? And it's, it's pretty wild. You know, like you said, you can change the guts and make the guitar sound quite a bit different, you know, and even just changing the wiring on the same set of pickups, you can do a lot of weird stuff to it. And it's, it's pretty cool. I, I feel like that's a handy thing too, you know, um, as far as knowledge with your instrument is knowing how to like do that kind of stuff and fix it. Right. I mean, I, I didn't even really know that I was interested in, in building guitars. I just wanted to save the money and not pay somebody else to do it. You know, like I'm, I'm a pretty heavy handed player when I play electrically and, uh, you know, paying somebody to refret a guitar is, pretty expensive you know anywhere around three to four hundred bucks depending on the guitar you have and binding and stuff but when i do it at home it it costs me the fret wire mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> so i'm i'm automatically up on it you know i've got a guild guitar uh an old 70s guild that i've i've refretted twice already oh, wow um, and you know i i would rather do it myself than trust somebody at you know some guitar center or whatever yeah, that makes sense. I mean, you don't have any control over them 
having the respect for your instrument that you would have you know it's so that's pretty cool though too because i mean i've never refretted a guitar um like the most of my modifications are are electronic so like anything like that i think that the guitar neck is the one thing that's always weirded me out a little bit i have too much dinking with that i'm like "Eh, (laughs) i'm I'm done with this you know but uh i've never refretted a guitar i've i've seen videos of it it doesn't look terribly hard but i'm sure you can bung it up and ruin it pretty quick too i'm i I wouldn't say that it's incredibly difficult but it's incredibly tedious oh gosh yeah yeah i mean it's it's a lot of repetition of the same thing over and over again and you know grinding stuff down, re-rounding it and polishing it and sanding it with, you know, four different grit. And yeah, it, it takes a while. I mean, that, that's why it's expensive to yeah. pay somebody else to do it. But you know, if I can sit down and do it while I'm watching TV, it saves me a hell of a lot of money. So true, true. Yeah. And I mean, that's nothing against people who fix guitars for a living. Cause I have taken right. my guitar to people to have it fixed for certain things, depending on what it is. Uh, same thing with amp techs. I'll take my my amp to an amp tech if the guts are something's wrong with it. Cause I'm, I can fix stuff, but once again, it comes down to like, you got to hope the internet's not lying and, and, right. and pray that and, you're not blowing stuff up and killing yourself. So yeah, some of that amp stuff is dangerous. I won't even think about touching it, but yeah. <laughs> I'll I'll get my hands dirty with a guitar, but yeah, I'll I'll pay anyone any amount of money to to fix my amp when it's broken. Yeah, true. I mean, and that's that that's a testament to like ha- you have the knowledge and you can kind of charge the money you want for it because it's it's important knowledge and it's not always easy and some of it's dangerous and that's you know that's one of those crazy things. Um, yeah. <clears throat> you know, while we're on the the topic of electronics. Let's shift gears here because I know you're a, a video game fan and you've got a Game Boy on your shirt for anyone watching the video. You I all do. can see that. Um, we, I know you're making a book. You're writing a book about video games, which seems like a kind of a crazy endeavor. Uh, let's start there because I know you like video games. So what's this book going to be about? So this book is is kind of two different things combined. It's It's sort of a review book but also kind of like a comic art book. So I'm going, what I'm doing is I'm going through each one of the North American Game Boy game releases and doing a short little review and some artwork to go along with it. Um, it's a, a pretty hefty goal. Um, I, it's definitely going to take me a couple years to do it. I mean, there's like 1,500 games. Oh, yeah. Uh, I was going to ask. To play through them all and, and go through, you know, and review everything and give it artwork is just, I mean, I don't know why I decided to do it, but, um, it's definitely been a lot of fun so far. So, yeah, I like, I'm thinking in my mind, like some of the games, like how long did it take me to beat Zelda for game boy? And it's like, yeah, I mean, that one might take a little while or like maybe one or two of the Mario games might take a long afternoon if you're really good at it. I'm, I'm just trying to think, but there's also some goofy games like tennis. It's like, well, yeah. I, I could probably crush this one or like golf. Like, okay, I can get that one down, you know, and play all the courses and done and whatever, you know, write the thing. But some of those games are going to be hefty to go through. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I've, I've been slowly collecting like physical games. Uh, I would say over the last like five or six years uh, for game boy. And I, I haven't even really cracked the surface of it yet. <laughs> um, I'm trying to play through as, as much of the actual um, you know, physical cartridges that I can on, on real hardware, but 
some of the games are just so expensive and some of them are just so hard to find that, uh, you know, sometimes an emulator is really the only way that I can be able to do that. But if I, if I can play the real thing, I'll, I'll play the real thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, some of those games have got to be so common though, too, that like they're free, you know, that's the other end of the spectrum, right. you know? Te- yeah. I mean, Tetris equals like Frampton comes alive on vinyl, you know? <laughs> like <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's, there's definitely a handful of games that, that keep showing up over and over and over again. I'm like, God, I don't want to play that at all, but gotta play them all yeah gotta play them all man and that's the other thing there's a lot of games are you gonna stop at the game boy like just the gray cartridges you're not gonna dip into like the color games or anything like that no i'm i'm sticking with anything that will play on an original uh game boy which is the model dmg01 okay um you know it the with the green screen the gray scale and, and all that stuff um, so basically that limits me to the gray cartridges. There's a couple exceptions like Pokemon. Um, and then like the Donkey Kong land games have yellow cartridges, but they, you know, came out on original game boy. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some of the black cartridges, which are like, they'll play on original game boy, but they'll show up in color when you play them on game boy color. So oh. I'm not including games like that. Yeah. I had a couple of those game boy color games and they would, uh, they would downscale to the, the po- game boy pocket the same way where like it would just nerf all the colors out of them. But there was like a point in time where I think they like drew the line and they were like, everything that comes out after this is color only, you know, and it wouldn't right. downscale. Um, you know, the Game Boy is a game. I, f- I feel like that's like a console everybody knows and loves. Uh, <laughs> I, I always think of the videos of little kids trying to play Game Boys nowadays and, you know, 2020, and they're like trying to touch, use it as a touchscreen and it's not touchscreen, you know, <laughs> those are yeah <laughs> some of the funniest. And it's like always mind blowing to us. Like, how can you not see there's buttons there? But to them, it's like so rudimentary. They wouldn't even enjoy it. But to so many of us, and I'm, I'm talking like when the Game Boy came out, adults were playing it kids were playing it like families were playing it it was it was the portable nintendo family entertainment system you know and it was it was something that everybody knew and loved i mean there were you know millions of people that bought the game boy it came with tetris and that's all they needed you know they would take it on the train with them when they commuted to work you know business guys would have it in their briefcase you know grandmas would play it yeah it was just every everyone had it it was so easy to learn and and so accessible and it was cheap at the time yeah um i mean yeah it really wasn't that expensive and even when like the pocket came out it wasn't that expensive and new games new games were kind of pricey i mean if i think if i remember they were like 30 dollars, which was a lot in you know the mid 90s or earlier but uh You know, even then, like used games were not much of a thing then, but they started to kind of become a thing. And I mean, bigger cities had used game markets, smaller towns, not so much. But I, I'm trying to think of like some of the, my my favorite Game Boy games over time. Like what were some of your childhood favorite Game Boy games, like the games you just couldn't put down? Um, I, I would say it was probably the first four that I ever owned. And it was, um, you know, I had Tetris like everyone else. Um there was a, a game called Choplifter where you're a helicopter and you have to rescue um, people from uh, the left side of the screen as well as the right side of the screen. And there's things shooting at you you have to look out for. 
um, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, uh, Follow the Foot Clan was another one. Yeah. I'm a huge Ninja Turtles fan, so of course, you know, anything related to the Turtles, I had to have it. Yep. Um, and then there was a, an old arcade game called Kicks that was uh, ported to the Game Boy. Um, and the port is actually, I think, pretty good. Uh, it's a little bit slower than the original arcade from the 70s, but it's a really basic puzzle game where this, uh, I guess they call it the kicks, is trying to bounce around the screen. It's kind of just like a bunch of dashes uh, that look kind of like a cyclone or a tornado, um, and it folds around uh, kind of like an accordion back and forth, and you have to fill in the screen by drawing squares in different shapes. Um, and you have to fill in like 75% of the screen in order to progress to the next level. So it's really easy to learn. There's like two buttons, but it's so addictive. I've, I've gotten a bunch of my friends hooked on it. And, you know, my friend Ian, he put it on his arcade machine. He's got a main cabinet that he built. And, you know, we go over there and play for hours I'm going to have to write this down. You know, it's really funny is I, the last time we talked, I actually wrote down some notes and I wrote down kicks, but I didn't write down what it was. So obviously when you Google kicks, uh, the first thing that shows up is either the cereal or the band from the eighties. Oh yeah. And so, so I'm like, well, it's like, what are we talking about? Kicks? Like, what was that all about? You know, it's spelled really weird too. It's Q I X. There we go. That's, that's where I'm going to find the right way to spell it. All right. I'm going to circle that game. I've been, I've been asking people about goofy games I used to play growing up, and that's one of those games where it sounds like when you try to explain it to someone, you're like, this is what it is. I know it's, like you said, it's like, you're this dashes and cyclones and your shapes, and you're trying to fill up the screen, and the kids today would be like, what? Like, what? <laughs> that doesn't make any sense, because everything today is yeah. is so... Uh, I don't know what the, like the right word for it was. Now here you go. I heard somebody explain video games like this once. Uh, when you were growing up, they were such an escape from reality that it didn't matter how goofy they were. But like nowadays, video games are almost like uh, adjacent to reality. They're like augmenting and creating a reality that's everything's so lifelike. Like when you were growing up, you played a video game where this Italian plumber guy would eat mushrooms and get bigger and save a princess from the sewers and a turtle guy was you know and it's like what yeah. like but nowadays it's like call of duty like what are we doing it's like we're recreating a, a war that actually happened and it's like wait yeah we're recreating world war Two. like holy cow that's like isn't that a little real like a little too real like there's no more like goofy games like like you had described and there's there used to be so many of them like that were like the game's pretty simple like tetris you know you just yeah fill in a straight line and the thing deletes that's it that was the whole game like, there wasn't anything different to any of it unless you played another character or until they came off with, you know, spinoffs like Dr. Mario and things like that. Right. You know, that's another thing I thought about when you were talking about porting a game to the Game Boy. There were some games that were created on different platforms, and then they actually came out with a Game Boy version that was a dumbed-down version of, of what it is. I'm sure yeah. there's plenty of those games you may or may not be looking forward to playing through man i there's i i think the game boy was one of the first systems that had just an obscene amount of shovelware on it where they didn't really care you know whether the game worked or not they're like hey if it turns on and you can get through the 
first level, it's fine. Whatever, just push it out. <laughs> um, and then you know, there's so many weird like movie tie-in games or like show like TV show games. Like <laughs> the Blues Brothers not only have one game, but they have two games on the Game Boy, and it's just like. <laughs> What the heck were they thinking? I mean, Wayne's World has games, you know, Beavis and Butthead, stuff like that. It's just like the hunt for Red October. It's yeah, like, that was honestly like when you started talking about that, that was the first one that came to my mind. I was like, what was there? What were they thinking with this game? And it's not a horrible game, honestly, but it's just like, what? Right. And it barely even has anything to do with the game. It's more of a submarine game than it is an espionage of any sort game. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they, they put some really really weird stuff on there and I, I feel like I've only just tapped into the surface of it so we'll see what happens with the the next 1300 games that I have to go through yeah I mean what are some of the goofiest things you found on the Game Boy because I remember we brought a couple of them up last time um there's like the obvious one I think we discussed last time that you'd mentioned was something like they've got just the bible on a Game Boy game I'm like yeah it's they, not really a game have- or anything but it's Yep, they have uh, the King James Bible. There's uh, uh, English to Spanish and English to French translator. Um, actually, just yesterday, I got some news that there was a, an unreleased uh, Game Boy accessory that was a keyboard. So you set the Game Boy in this holder, and that was your screen, and you could actually type on the keyboard and do like, you know, business stuff. It had like a word processor. Uh, it never came out, but they they just unre- like unreleased all the the documents and stuff from it. That's wild. Um, there's stuff like a, a, an actual working fish sonar that attaches to your Game Boy. So you put this cartridge in and connect this fish thing to your phone, and you throw the line out, and it tells it actually works like a sonar. It tells you where how deep the fish are, dude. If people aren't watching the video of that, like while you were talking, my face went from like what to like oh my god to like I can't believe it to like that's that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard of to like it works and I was I went through such a range of emotion there. <laughs> I can't believe that. Like they thought of everything for the Game Boy. They did. I mean, obviously, when it morphed a little bit into the pocket, they started getting even weirder with the camera and the printer and everything else. Right. But you could do anything with it. It almost yeah, sounds I like. Mean, for the Game Boy Color, they actually had a sewing machine that you would type in patterns on the on the Game Boy and it would sew it for you with the sewing machine. I mean, there's just so many weird video game stuff. And a lot of it never even hit the American market. Um, you know, m- mostly Japan got all the, the cool, weird stuff. Yeah. But. I mean, it makes sense, marketing, you know, release it in your own country and then see how it does. And I mean, I get it. I get it. Plus, they're a little bit more technologically advanced. You know, they've been doing goofy stuff with cell phones for a lot longer than we have and vending machines and everything else they've got going on over there. So they're a little bit ahead of us when it comes to using technology in modern life. But man, the Game Boy is just is blowing my mind right now. I had no idea like half this stuff existed. And, like, <laughs> uh, I realized non games existed, but I didn't realize they existed to that extent. You know, like, uh, like the fishing sonar blows my mind. <laughs> I don't know what to think about that. I'm gonna have to. I'm actually I'm gonna have to look that. Up. I'm gonna write that one down too. Um, but and that's one of my favorite things about this is like. This book is going to be interesting because of some of the stuff that you're going to have to adapt because of that. Like, how are you going to write a review on a game that's not a game, you know? 
Yeah, I mean, there's there's some games too that are just so simple. I mean, there's like the four in one pack games that are like chess and checkers and backgammon. Like, how how much can you really <laughs> review on checkers and chess? I mean, there's such you know they've been around as, as board games for thousands of years. Like, yeah. how do you how do you really go into detail? I'm I guess I'm gonna have to, but. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to write a review on this new game. It's called chess. All right. You guys are never going to believe this. <laughs> oh, man. Yep, it's chess. Yeah. Um, Just chess. Yep. I mean, there might be some caveats and things you could, like, dig into. Like, are there certain things you can do in a chess game that the the game doesn't allow you to do? Or has there been anything notorious you have found in a, in a game where you've been playing through it and you're like, whoa, this is, like you said, like earlier, they were notorious for, like, some of the games didn't quite work so well later in the game or some goofy stuff could kind of go on depending on what you're trying to do. Has there been any games in specific, you know, specifically you've run into where you're like, all oh, them totally messed this part up or there's, there's no way to get past this level or something like that. I, I haven't really come across anything like that yet. Um, at, at least not that I'm aware of. Um, most of the time it's usually just really bad controls or like, you know, the hitboxes on the characters themselves are just so ridiculous that it's like you have to be in the, you know, perfect spot in order for this tiny little pixel to hit that tiny little pixel. Otherwise, you're dead. Oh, um, yeah. And, you know, back then they weren't as uh, nice with their continues. It was like, no, it's one hit death. And you have three lives. Yeah. Yep. And that's it. Yeah. And you can't save the game and come back to it later. No saves, no yep. batteries. Yep. You're just dead. Yep. Start over. Try another four hours down the drain. See if you can get back there. Yeah. I, You know, and I think about that, too, because some of those older games, a lot of it was, like, spatial awareness and timing. That was, like, the two things they leaned everything on. Like, you have, you have to be... You have to time everything out in order to get past this part, or you have to be like in a certain area and perform a certain thing in order to get past it, you know? And yeah, it, a lot of it's just like memorization of levels, you know, memorizing boss patterns. Uh, you know, I, when I was playing uh, Castlevania for original Nintendo, a lot of it is like memorizing the exact patterns of, of boss or like enemies, the way that they come into the screen and stuff. And, you know, there's certain areas where you can, there's certain spots where you can stand and nothing's going to touch you no matter what. But if you go one pixel to the left, you're done. So. <laughs> oh man. That's, that's the other crazy thing is like, like you said, like the hit boxes on some of those characters and stuff. Cause I mean, I've played enough video games. I'm sure everyone else has that's old enough. You remember playing Mario and it's like, Oh, I, th I thought for sure I was going to get killed by this guy, but, but he went like through my, uh, the corner of my face, you know? And it's one of those things where like, well, I didn't hit the, perfect spot on it and things like that but gosh i i feel like you've got you're on something really you know special here when it comes down to looking at the the game boy and all of the things that that go along with it you're probably going to unearth a lot of things no one's ever heard of and you're probably also going to uh remind people of a lot of things they loved in their past i'm trying to think of like 1500 games it's gonna it's gonna take you a while i mean even like one game yeah. a day that's five five years almost you know like four years <laughs> yeah oh, yeah man. i mean some of them like i said like the four and one packs they're they're pretty quick so i could probably knock out like maybe four or five in a day but it's not every day that i'm able to sit down and go i'm gonna play through this game today and then 
write a review and then draw a comic on it on my computer, you know? So yeah, it's, an- I, it's probably going to take me about four or five years to finally get this thing out, but I'm going to try my damnedest to get it out sooner than later. Yeah, man. Yeah, totally. Oh, we've, we've covered almost, you know, we've got about an hour in here. Um, for anybody that's listening to this, that got to the end, this is actually our second try on a podcast. Our first one had uh, some technical difficulties. And, uh, you know, this this one's been great. We covered, I feel like, everything in the previous one and more. So, like, uh, this, this episode's been great. Uh, I appreciate you sitting down with me. I do want to remind everyone, um, you did have an album come out earlier this year what it was 2020 or was it 2019 because i think you said uh, 2019 earlier in the podcast but then it was pr- just before covid hit wasn't right it? uh it was 2020 so yes. it was april 20th of this year all right yeah all right so uh that's available online bradley allen i will put links down below to all that stuff do you have any social media that's dedicated to bradley allen like your music pages and things like that um i have a, a facebook page under bradley allen and then I have uh, my Instagram is Bradley Allen Music. Awesome. I will uh, put links to those down below as well. So if anybody's looking for information, uh, upcoming albums and more fun stuff, that's where you're going to end up finding it. Otherwise, uh, check it out. It's on Spotify. I know it's on Spotify. Probably every other streaming service as well, I'm assuming. So uh, yeah. So check out that album. If you knew him from uh, your childhood or whether you're listening for the first time now, uh, it's definitely worth a listen. So check it out, everybody. Uh, Brad, don't go away. Uh, Thank you for joining me. Yeah, thanks, man. That was a cool episode. Uh, It makes me wish I knew Brad when he was around. He seems like a really cool guy. Seems like the kind of guy I would like to hang out with and... You know, it's it's super cool that he's doing that book with the video games, uh, the Game Boy. Everybody has played a Game Boy. I know people 10 and 20 years older than me and 10 and 20 years younger than me that know what Game Boys are. Uh, it is kind of fun to watch those videos of the super young kids trying to run a Game Boy like it's a touchscreen. I, I don't know why I think that's so funny, but it is. Uh, check out Brad's links. I put them down below. There should be links to the Bradley Allen information down there. Uh, at least what I can find and what I know. Otherwise, I do know that his album is on Spotify and everywhere else. If you guys stream music at all, it should be easy to find. Look him up as Bradley Allen. He goes by Bradley Allen Musically and uh, Brad Hansen Professionally. It's one of those things that, you know, I guess some people do it that way. And uh, I, don't, I don't know why he's doing that. I should have asked him in that podcast. But Bradley Allen is where you're going to find all of his music. And it's tasty stuff. It's pretty interesting. Uh, it made it... I listened to it before, we did an interview, and then the interview was choppy, so I did another one, and I have to say, listening to the music really kind of made me think a lot about, you know, what we were talking about as far as stretching past your normal musical bounds to create something that you wouldn't normally create, and that was, you know, it was really cool, it was really cool to have that be a thing, and and listen to the album and think about that, Um, so... I guess that's one of those things I think about a lot. Some people have musical avenues they go down and they always tend to stay down their one musical avenue. Um, But some of the best people find ways to be well-rounded, you know? And uh, I guess that uh, could be a lesson for life, too, if you really want to look at it that way. So, so hey, hats off to Brad. Uh, You know, still making music regardless of where he goes and uh, regardless of what the musical scene is like. So it's really cool to have him doing that, you know? being in a place where he can't play shows and can barely even go outside and do anything and he's still making music at his place so that's uh that's really cool you know those people that are working hard and not just looking at this as like the worst thing that's ever happened to them in their lives it's uh it's gonna be pretty cool because you just 
if you stay at home, you got to find something to do. And these people that are working on their hobbies, I, I think that is just insanely cool. Uh, so hats off to everybody that, you know, worked really hard this year, made an album, uh, worked on making a new album that will come out next year. Uh, anybody that released an album during the pandemic, that, you know, that's a, that was a gamble because you can't go out promote it with playing or shows. So that's a toughie. And uh, I, you know, I guess I'm in a band that did that. And it worked out all right to our favor, you know. It's not like... I'm sure it would have been better if we had played shows, but we've actually... It's changed. The atmosphere has changed. And uh, online shops are a thing, and people are okay with supporting bands by buying things from them. And, and I really appreciate everybody that's bought the Three Finger Betty album, if you guys want to check that out too. Um, I guess scroll back to the Three Finger Betty episode and listen to that. There's more information about it there, as well as on the Three Finger Betty Facebook page. But that's not what this episode was about. This episode was about Brad Hansen. And like I said, seems like a really cool guy. The Game Boy book idea is insane. His music is is really cool. It's really interesting. Like I said, it's really interesting knowing that he likes playing metal, kind of like I do, you know. But he also has other avenues, and he's got to think about making the music. It doesn't just fall out and happen magically, you know. And it's I like asking people about how they write music because not everybody writes it the same way, but everybody kind of sort of does, you know. There's there's no bad ideas, and sometimes you need to purge bad ideas, get new ideas, and and sometimes you have to string together a few good ideas to make one actual song or, or lyric or something. So hats off to everybody doing all that hard work. Uh, singing, songwriting, playing music, all of it's hard work. Um, thank you guys very much for listening to the podcast in 2020. It was a difficult year. I'm glad I could accompany you guys uh, through the year and give you guys something to listen to while you guys either were or were not playing shows or trying to find some way to stay connected to the music scene. So hats off to everybody for listening this year. I really appreciate it. Uh, More episodes coming next year. So uh, thank you guys very much. Um, Check out the Audible Farm shop, shop shop.audiblefarm.com, or you can go to audiblefarm.com and find all of the social media and follow us on there. Subscribe on YouTube, all that good stuff. Have a great uh, rest of your 2020, and here comes 2021. We'll check you guys next week. Peace. Peace.